Welcome to episode four of the second season of Free the Seed, the open source seed initiative podcast that tells the stories of new crop varieties and the plant breeders that develop them. I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren. In this episode, I talk with Craig LaHoulier and Petrina Nusky-Small, the co-creators of the Dwarf Tomato Project, the first all-volunteer worldwide tomato breeding project in documented gardening history. We discuss how the project came about, the benefits and challenges of having an all-volunteer team, and the pleasant surprises of plant breeding. Petrina Nusky-Small began gardening in her 50s after graduating from Flinders University in South Australia, realizing that it was time to get away from research and spend more time outside in the fresh air. She's currently based in New South Wales. Dr. Craig LaHoulier followed a 25-year career in pharmaceuticals with an ongoing writing career that includes epic tomatoes and growing vegetables in straw bales. He maintained a parallel obsession with gardening, first with heirloom tomatoes, then with amateur breeding. Craig joined Seed Savers Exchange in 1986 and serves as an advisor to the exchange for tomatoes. Craig is based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Petrina, Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you very much, Rachel. It's an absolute delight to be able to do this today. Craig, maybe you can start by briefly telling us about the Dwarf Tomato Project. What is the project and what are its goals? The project uh, is huge, um, fascinating, endlessly surprising. To put it all in a sentence, the, the goal of the Dwarf Tomato Breeding Project was to offer to the gardening community the largest possible selection of interesting, delicious tomato plants that can be grown by space challenge gardeners, while at the same time provide a fascinating project for those wishing to become involved to experience. And in that respect, I think we haven't only checked every box we set out to check, but we've checked boxes we never thought that we were going to check. Petrina, how did the project get started and when did it get started? Uh, in 2005, I was searching the internet for gardening information because I really needed to, like I say, get outside in the fresh air and get away from books. And I found a tomato forum and I thought that was really odd how you could have a whole forum on tomatoes. <laughs> and once I was in there, I found out so many interesting things. And Craig was one of the main posters. And one day he pointed out that We've got, you know, thousands of heirloom varieties of tomato, but the dwarf category is just so limited to usually small red tomatoes. And wouldn't it be great if we could just do some crosses with heirlooms and dwarfs? And I thought that sounded like a really fun fun thing to do. And I thought, right, I'm going to grow some dwarfs next season and I'm <laughs> growing some heirloom varieties and I'm going to have a go at crossing some tomatoes. And... I loved biology in high school, and so it was really a real fun thing for me to do. And I was successful, and we started off with eight crosses, which we named after the seven dwarfs, and we added another one called Witty, <laughs> um, because we needed to have names for the hybrids for ease of reference. And I sort of collaborated with Craig, and we organised to start teams, one in the Northern Hemisphere, one in the Southern Hemisphere, so that we could grow two seasons in a year, and the project was born. Katrina opened this up really wonderfully. And I think in parallel, my wife and I have been selling heirloom tomato seedlings for, at the time, about 15 years here in Raleigh. And the most frequently asked question was always, 
I love Cherokee purple and I love sun gold, but these things get eight or 10 feet tall and they go all over the place. And I need to garden on my deck or my patio or my driveway, or, you know, I've got a physical issue that means that I need to deal with smaller plants. So at the same time, Petrina got that spark about crossing varieties of heirlooms with dwarfs. The need was showing up for my end of being able to tell my customers, we do have interesting, colorful, delicious, large-fruited, worthwhile varieties that will excel in a small container. And you can use useless tomato cages, those wire cone-shaped things that people put on their indeterminates and then throw up their hands after a few weeks. They're perfect for the dwarf. So in a way, I think Petrina and I were meant to meet when we did and do this project when we did, because it is serving a lot of gardeners who otherwise you know, they would struggle to grow tomatoes if they didn't have these shorter varieties to pick from. You use the word indeterminate, Craig, for some of the tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And so tomatoes can come in an indeterminate or a determinate variety. And maybe you could remind our listeners what those terms mean and then how those differ from dwarf varieties. Sure. Well, the main collection of tomatoes, probably 98% are indeterminate, meaning they grow vertically They sucker at every intersection between a main stem and the leaf junction. Suckers are just additional fruiting main stems until they're killed by frost or disease. So conceivably, a tomato that is indeterminate can reach 10, 15, 20, 25 feet in length, three to six feet or more in girth, and just be incredibly complex, out-of-control plants. The determinant gene really showed up for the first time in the 1920s. And a lot of the modern hybrids are determinate in which they reach a height of about three to four feet. They throw out tons of blossoms. They fruit within about a two or three week period, and then they're pretty much done. So people think of a tomato like Roma. It's a tomato machine for a short period of time. You make your sauce or you do your canning. But because there are so many fruit in ratio with the amount of foliage, the flavor potential of determinants tend to be inferior to those of indeterminates. Dwarf is the third type of tomato that just never got a lot of attention because there were so few of them around, but they combine the best traits of indeterminates in having the ability to fruit until they're killed by frost with the short stature. And what I like to tell my customers is a dwarf is a tomato that grows at half the vertical rate of an indeterminate. So if you have a Cherokee purple that's eight feet tall in your garden at the end of the season, your dwarf variety is going to be four feet tall, which means it's easier to contain. One of the benefits is they really don't have to be pruned, but they do fruit gradually. And you have, because the fruit to foliage ratio is much more in line of an indeterminate with a dwarf, you have the flavor potential there, which can equal the best of the indeterminates. Something that Katrina demonstrated with one of her very first crosses, which we'll get to, the Sneezy Cross, Everything that's popped out of that cross has been utterly delicious, and uh, it's not a surprise because one of the parents, Green Giant, is one of the best tomatoes we had ever eaten. Can any tomato be made into a dwarf variety? Uh, Yes. The thing is here, and this is one of the fun things about this project, is that we were dealing with recessive traits as well as dominant traits. Dwarfism is is a recessive trait. Uh, whereas the normal regular heirloom varieties, their dominant genes mean that they grow so big and tall. So if you combine anything with a dwarf plant, you will get some recessive genes in the pool. 
So the first generation, which is the F1 generation, the dominant trait will show up only. You will not see any dwarfs in that generation. You'll only see uh, non-dwarfs. But in the second generation, they start dividing out between dwarfs and non-dwarfs, and you'll get approximately 25% that will be dwarf compared to 75% that are not dwarfs. And of those non-dwarfs also, in the third generation, you can still find a few dwarfs. So that was really interesting learning for the people in the project to just see this come about. So I think Petrina touched on something that's really, really important. We were all pretty much amateur gardeners who maybe some of us had science backgrounds, but I think what we had in common was we loved to garden and we were either very or reasonably good at making observations and keeping track of things, but it was this love of the unknown. So even to this day, 13 years after we started this project, whenever we do a cross and grow it out, we're still learning about what's dominant, what's recessive. When you cross a green one and white, what happens? When you cross a white with a pink? Scientists have recorded some of these down in scientific papers, but gardeners have never really experienced and seen these firsthand. So one of the challenges I'm facing, because what I'm trying to do is get a book written about this project, but how to cover the genetics in a way that a layman will find fascinating. You don't get into the weeds of genetics, yet you're sharing all of the wonders of the things that we've discovered in doing this work over the past 13 years. It sounds like it's been quite a learning opportunity for everyone involved. Yes. Wouldn't you say, Katrina? Oh, absolutely. And so much fun. And in fact, the fun aspect was really the primary goal uh, when we were sharing the opportunity to forum participants to take part. We wanted them to have fun and we wanted them to actually be able to report on what they found and how it tasted and how it performed and all of those exciting things. But we also gave them the opportunity to name any new varieties that they discovered along the way. So they could name it after their pet or their family members or <laughs> something else if they wanted to. And I chose to often use uh, names that were associated with Australia because I'm fairly keen that at least a small part of this project still retains its Australian background. The fun of naming something that's really relevant to you, we felt was a reward to people for all the hard work that they put in. And without our volunteers doing all of this work, this project could never really have gotten you know, underway to the extent or had the impact that it's had if it hadn't been for our volunteers. Yeah. One, one interesting anecdote about naming is uh, one of our volunteers was from New Zealand and he, he got essentially the Holy Grail. He ended up with a potato leaf dwarf with red and yellow bicolored swirled fruit that was absolutely delicious. And he named it W-H-E-R-O-K-O-W-H-A-I, which is a Maori term pronounced furtikai for red and gold or red and yellow. And I sell lots of seedlings and people look at it and they don't know how to spell it. I seem to be able to remember how to spell it because I've written it down 30 zillion times. So when you when you turn your team loose to name a variety, you have to be ready for anything to happen. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> um, so I, I would love to talk more about the community engagement aspect of this project, which makes it really unique. But first, Craig, you mentioned that there are 
a lot of benefits to growing dwarf varieties. So people can grow them in smaller containers. They don't require pruning. If you have just a small amount of space, you can grow something that maybe tastes still amazing, even though um, it's much smaller. But why, given all of that, why aren't there more commercially available dwarf varieties of tomato? Or rather, why weren't there more before you started this project? So this is an interesting one, and there's a few reasons for it. The third catalyst for the project, so Katrina named one where you know we could create this collaborative project and do crosses. I named a second where we could fulfill the gardener's needs. But there's a third catalyst, and that is I was perusing old seed catalogs and found a, a 1915 catalog from a company called Isbel that was in the Midwest in the United States. And they described a tomato called New Big Dwarf. And they said that we crossed the largest tomato we could find, Ponderosa, with a dwarf variety. And at this time, there were only three or four of these around, Dwarf Champion. And New Big Dwarf was the first, and up until our project, the only of the large-fruited dwarfs. And I think it just went into the background as more and more tomatoes came out, and then Burpee came out with Big Boy, and we get Big This and Better That and Ultra That and Super Duper That. Gardening is very prone to trends and fads and that which is advertised and that which shows up in seed catalogs. So again, this divine intervention aspect, for some reason, the whole dwarf category was just sitting there waiting to be plucked by Petrina and I to fill a gap that we felt was clearly needed. And now that we've filled it, if you look at a company like the Victory Seed Catalog, where they can do star ratings to lots of our releases... People seem to love these things. Uh, my local customers are converting a lot of their garden choices from indeterminates to dwarf varieties. There was actually a set of hybrid dwarfs on the market for a few years called the Husky series, but they never caught on because they were just kind of ordinary, red, typical type tomatoes. It took until the Seed Savers Exchange did their thing and made heirlooms known, and then seed companies that specialized in non-hybrids made them widely available. Again, just the right time. It wasn't until the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, the possibility of even creating the types of dwarfs that we've created came about because of the availability now of this amazing range of diverse heirloom varieties to take advantage of. That's kind of my view. Katrina, I'd be interested in Kind of your your view of this as well is why now and why why do they seem to be so well received? Well, I think that the populations are really sort of moving towards city living and high rise living sometimes, yes. and yet at the same time, people are becoming more and more concerned about their food and where it comes from, and they don't really want to have food that's either genetically modified or or has tons of herbicides or pesticides or fungicides, yeah. etc. And so. People are being encouraged more and more to grow their own so that they can get good flavour and pick things when they're actually ripe instead of having supermarket varieties that are picked so green that they almost never ripen. And people do care about what they're eating these days and they haven't got space. And so it just seemed to make much more sense really to offer them something that they could grow in pots on balconies. So, yeah, I think it's just timing thing and serendipity and all of that in one. Yeah, and I think maybe this is the time to touch on another, what I think is a critical aspect of this project that 
we were not doing this project for financial compensation. And in fact, the end game of this project is that once we have a great variety, we find a seed company that we deem worthwhile and give them a starter amount of seeds to actually put in packets and sell. And so another, I think, hallmark of our approach is that this is an example of true altruism and humility and openness. That's the thing I'm most proud of what we've done is that in this time, in this age where we know how insane it is out there, we have not thought of doing any of this for any compensation whatsoever. Just the joy of gardening and the ability to give something wonderful. So because there is no compensation coming back to the project, everyone, including yourselves, everyone that's involved is a volunteer, which, as you've said, this is the first all-volunteer tomato breeding project like it. And I'm curious, what has been the role of those volunteers as the project has gone forward? After Petrina did those crosses, then where did the seeds go and what have been the roles of the other people who were involved? Right. Well, initially, after I'd made the initial crosses, I sent seeds to Craig to grow the uh, hybrid generation. And then he also sent seeds back to me to grow the second generation, the F2, but he shared it amongst the team members that he had and I shared the seeds that he sent me with my team members. And we went back and forward like this for quite a long time. However, the permissions for tomato seed, the, the permissions sort of seesawed here in Australia. Sometimes they were allowed and sometimes they weren't to be sort of imported. And so that did affect the sharing process to some extent. But in 2013, the department here that controls all of that sort of thing got in touch with me. And I think they got in touch with Craig and people in the Northern Hemisphere too, that it was no longer possible to actually import tomato seeds into Australia unless you were willing to pay for the process of having them certified as being free of seven particular viroids that they were concerned about here. And to do that, you had to supply a huge sample, like 20,000 seeds or something, for them to test. And this was not at all possible in our situation. So it more or less was at the stage anyway where we could just divide into two separate teams. Yeah. Rachel, you asked a great question. Because everyone is volunteer and because you're going to get a wide variety of personalities and many gardeners love to jump into something and then after a few years, been there, done that, now I'm ready to jump into something else. Others have incredible persistence. Some take every little bit of data that's available and share it with you. Others, it's like pulling teeth, even getting feedback from them. But if you think in terms of the fact that I've probably had 500 volunteers pass through um, my, I don't know, guidance in the U.S. in the years of the project, maybe 100 have been really, really serious about it. And this isn't to belittle at all the efforts of the other 400. Lives change, people's focus changes, their interest changes, their ability to follow through and and it's like everything else in life. You know, many, many are called and few are chosen to really become obsessed with something. But the volunteers have all been wonderful. Many of them have become friends. It would be better if we could still share because there are things that Petrina and I are working on, I'm sure, that we would just be dying to get into the other one's hands. 
we enjoy watching what each other are doing, but it's not quite the same as when we could send little packets of seeds back and forth to each other. Mm. How many varieties have been formally released through the project? 106. And uh, there are another 25 or 30 in Bill Minke's hands. Bill is the fellow who lives in Wisconsin, longtime seed saver who grows out the seed to give to the company. So if we were having this chat next year at this time, we could be at 130 to 135 released varieties. And all of them are released through the Open Source Seed Initiative, which is also Mm -hmm. amazing that our volunteers all readily agreed to us being able to pledge them. And, you know, I think that's astounding. Why was it important to you as a community to pledge these varieties as open source? For a long time, really, I've been quite concerned about the way the food movement develops as corporations take more charge of our seeds. And it became quite a concern of mine. And when I came across the Open Source Seed Initiative, I thought, this is amazing. This is wonderfully timely, you know. And so I sort of got in touch and started to do a little bit of pledging here and there. But in the end, we decided after discussions with Craig and uh, discussions with Carol Deppy, we decided that perhaps it would be great if the whole project itself and all of the new varieties Mm. that they developed would be pledged as open source seed. So we asked our volunteers and sure enough, they all agreed. And so there it is. All of them are open source seed initiative pledged. And I think that is fantastic, Katrina. I love the way you put that. And uh, on my part, I discovered the love of gardening just after I was married in 1981. And uh, my grandfather actually instilled the love of gardening in me when I was three or four years old. It just took growing up, going to school, dating, all that stuff. It went dormant for a while. But when my wife and I uh, met 40 years ago, the first thing we said is we need to have a garden. And then I get bored with the ordinary. So then I discovered the Seed Savers Exchange um, in 1986. And then there was genealogy and history and stories. And your garden wasn't just, you know, a bunch of plants or a bunch of red or yellow tomatoes. It was the story of the man or the woman or the family that sent you the seeds of those tomatoes. And the fact they were freely shared and the fact they could be saved and freely reshared. Before I knew about OSSI, that is my gardening principle, which is why I got so involved in the seed savers. It's very important to me that anything that we can create will never be taken over by a corporate interest and profited and people excluded from it. I I think they need to be there to be grown and enjoyed and shared and used forever. And that's just extremely important to me. We are going to take a short break. We'll get back to my conversation with Petrina and Craig in just a minute. If you're new to this podcast, consider listening to previous episodes from our first season. If you'd like to learn more about the Open Source Seed Initiative's history and mission, check out Season 1, Episode 2, where I talk with Dr. Erwin Goldman and Dr. Claire Luby about intellectual property rights and crop plants. After this episode, we'll be taking a planned break from the podcast. If you've enjoyed listening, please consider filling out our listener survey at bit.ly slash survey. Knowing more about our listeners, what you've liked and what we could improve, will help us as we consider creating more episodes in the future. Many thanks in advance for sharing your thoughts with us. Now let's get back to the conversation with Petrina and Craig. 
We discuss how, given the volunteer-driven nature of the project, there were limitations, but those didn't preclude the project from experiencing success. Going back to the logistics of running a program like this, when you would share seeds with your volunteers and they would grow tomatoes out, what sort of information were they sharing back with you about their observations of those plants and were volunteers making the selections to say which plants with what characteristics would be saved or would be selected and continued in the process of stabilization or were they sharing information and then the decision of selection was a more collaborative conversation? There are two aspects. First, we, we really wanted, to, because we were, we were all amateurs, we wanted to impress upon people. Let's say you've grown six plants. Don't pick tomatoes off all six of those plants and mix the seeds together. So we, we, we needed to kind of teach them a little bit that we're doing single plant selections right now to carry on. So if you go to six plants and you get a yellow and a red and a green and a purple and a brown and a white tomato, what Katrina and I would like back would be six packets of seeds, one from tomatoes from each one of those plants. We delegated to the participants to decide if something was wonderful. We did ask initially anyway for seeds of everything they grew out and then took into consideration what they decided about the quality of what they found and whether it was special enough to say, this is the one out of these six plants, these other five are interesting, but this one is the one. Now, why did we ask for the other five back? Because we often found that the best results didn't appear in the third generation. Maybe you'd grow a plant because it had an interesting color, but it didn't taste that good. And in the fourth or the fifth generation, bingo, you found the one that had the color and the flavor associated with it. But, you know, how would we have done this project if we were in a perfect world? We would have had acreage from each cross. We would have grown out 200 F2s to see as much as possible what the possibilities are. And then we would have grown large populations of each of these. A lot of these were single and maybe double plant selections, um, meaning we had to get to what we wanted fairly quickly but at least we're growing out to enough generations to convince ourselves that we're getting really, really good stability. We, we had sort of acknowledged right from the beginning that it was going to be a fun project and that there were going to be limitations and that we really wouldn't be able to grow out these large numbers of um, plants for each generation that really theoretically one is supposed to grow in order to find the diamond in the bunch. So knowing that we would have limitations, we still wanted to maintain it as being a fun and surprising sort of outcome. And whatever we found, we found. And whatever we missed, we missed. And mm -hmm. um, luckily, we just managed to find some beauties. So that made it even more exciting as well, the fact that even though maybe somebody only grew two plants, that one of them was absolutely great. And I, I actually sometimes would pot up some of the non-dwarf seedlings and give them to family members to grow out just to see what they got even though I only really grew dwarfs I wanted to just check what else there might be and in fact that's how one of my favorite tomatoes came about which is Uluru ochre mm. it was actually yeah. a non-dwarf a non seedling that I gave to my brother to grow and I went to collect samples from it and I looked at this tomato and I thought, this is really an odd-looking tomato. It's a really strange colour and it was a bit overripe when I felt it and I thought it might be going bad. And I decided to still take it for seeds. But when I was processing it for seeds, it smelt great. And I thought, okay, 
well, it smells all right. Perhaps I'll have a little taste. So I had a little taste and it was amazing. It just blew me away. It was a complex sort of flavor with a lot of sweetness. And I thought, this tomato is not bad. It's the color that's so strange about it. And so, of course, I saved seed. But then I was thinking, gosh, I hope I can find dwarfs in the next generation, in the third generation. But sure enough, we did find some dwarfs. From there, we got Uluru ochre. And what's amazing about that is Petrina discovered the very first black orange. So a Cherokee purple and a Cherokee chocolate are like black reds and black browns, black pinks. But uh, Uluru ochre retains green as it turns orange. And we'd bring that tomato to our Tomato Palooza tasting events, and people would look at it and go, oh, my gosh. Am I supposed to eat that tomato? (laughs) I think it's the most beautiful tomato in the garden. And others will probably have a little bit of compunction about, you know, do I I go near this thing? It is so unique. That was a brilliant find, Petrina, no doubt about it. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Oh, I look forward to seeing a photo of that. We'll make sure to post it on the show notes so that other people can see what that black orange looks like. I don't don't think I've ever seen a tomato like that. Yeah, there's one more point I wanted to make about data. So what we would have wished for everyone to do, and we couldn't even fulfill this ourselves, would be plant height, plant habit, fruiting habit, apparent disease tolerance, yield per plant, days to maturity, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes what you get back from volunteers were, here's a picture of the tomato I grew and here's the seeds. Oh, it was red. Or here's a delicious tomato and here's the seeds. Oh, by the way, do you remember the color? Oh, I kind of forgot. So what you had to do, and this is not a slam against anybody, because if I look back in my records over the last five years, I have got things missing that I could have sworn that I would have taken down. You're in summertime. It's sweaty. You're sweating all over your notebook. You're busy. You're trying to get things watered. You're picking. You're seed saving. You're tasting. There just simply isn't the time to collect and transfer all the data. So we In our project, Petrina and I just made the best of what we got. And man, it was enough to get us where we went to. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's a great great thing to hear because I'm sure that thinking that one needs to get all of the details of every potentially measurable trait, that might slow people down or or make them more hesitant Mm -hmm. to start a breeding project. And so to hear that, you know, you can be successful and come up with some really interesting and exciting new varieties, even if you don't take all of the notes that you possibly could take, even if you just say, you know, I really like this and I'm going to save seed from it (laughs) and put a star on the label and say next year I'll definitely grow it and look at it again, um, that sometimes that's all it takes. Yes, when I look at my notebooks from right at the beginning of the project, I hardly wrote down anything. I did have a notebook, but they are so disorganized, and I often just (laughs) reported on the taste and the color, and that was it. But as I progressed through the project and realized that there's so much more to observe, then each year I think my notebooks got better and better and better. And now when I look at it, I think, well, I didn't even realize that I was actually developing, as I went, some good strategies here. And I do encourage yeah. people to have a notebook every year because you do forget. It's easy to forget what you had on a certain year. And it's really great when you need yeah. to look back. You've got it there. You've got the info of what you grew and it's, how it performed. Yeah, It's a really encouraging lesson that you can get started on a breeding project and it doesn't have to be perfect. And it can get you can get better at it as you go. But just jumping in and getting started is a great way to learn about breeding and 
or what's the saying that a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step? That yes, that's how oh, breeding yeah. is too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I wanted to raise a couple of other just interesting surprises that we found along the way because they've led to some of our really great varieties, some of which had these wonderful Australian names. So, Katrina crossed Dump of the World, which is a wonderful large pink heirloom, with this rather ordinary red dwarf, Budai Torp. And you figure, okay, you cross a pink and a red, what are we going to get for possibilities out of this? We're going to get pinks and reds, and maybe they'll taste good, maybe they won't. So the Sleepy family was born. Boom, all of a sudden, a purple tomato popped out of it. So you're crossing a pink and a red, and somewhere hiding in one of those varieties were the recessive genes of the black tomato. And Rosella Purple was born. And if, if you were to sit people down who have purchased our dwarfs, they would probably put Rosella Purple in the top 10 and say that tomato is a challenger to Cherokee purple in terms of quality and flavor. I mean, didn't that blow you away, Petrina, to find purple coming out of that cross? It did. And that was such a surprise. And another surprise was in our cross tipsy, which was a cross between mm. Golden Dwarf Champion, uh, which is a yellow tomato, and Earl, which is an orange tomato. And the hybrid generation, the first generation, turned out to be red. And that was a surprise as well. <laughs> yes. And some of the absolute best flavored tomatoes of our project came out of the Tipsy Cross. So Golden Dwarf Champion, as an eating tomato, it's from the 1880s. It's a burpee variety. It's one of the original dwarfs through the U.S. tomato history. It's okay. You grow it, you eat it. It's like, yeah, it's an okay tomato. But when Petrina crossed it with Green Giant, made the Sneezy family, and then crossed it with Elb to create the Tipsy family, Almost everything that popped out of those crosses tastes spectacular. And that is something you can't guess, you can't plan for, and you can't see. Just amazing to me. So the, the sneezy and sleepy families, you gave each cross a familial name so that every line that came out of that cross kept that label of the family so that you could trace it all the way back to the cross that you made? Yes, the inspiration really came from Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And um, <laughs> so we kind of stuck to the to the names in a similar fashion and made up names as we went along. Because if you're trying to refer to a cross, you don't want to have to write down each time Golden Dwarf Champion crossed with Elb F2 or F3 <laughs> or F4, etc. You can just write down Tipsy F2, F3, F4. It just made things so much more simple. So we've heard from Petrina about her favorite variety that's come out of this project. Craig, do you have a favorite variety? Somehow I do. So Petrina did this marvelous cross sneezy where she crossed Green Giant onto Golden War Champion in 2006. So the sneezy hybrid was incredible. It was like an eight and a half, nine out of 10 flavor wise, these big, beautiful eight to 10 ounce yellow tomatoes. So I thought, well, this is kind of hopeful. And then the story goes to a fellow um, named David Lockwood, but he was affectionately known as a grub on Tomatoville. So Grub sent me some seed from something that he called Summertime Gold 3. It was almost white. And I grew four of them. One of the potato leaf plants had these gorgeous six to eight ounce, variably shaped fruit, but they were a nice, um, lovely medium yellow with a little bit of a red blush on the bottom. And the flavor was just supreme. It, it had everything I love in a tomato. It reminded me very much of the flavor of Lillian's Yellow Heirloom and also of Green Giant. And, you know, my wife, my best pal, I named it Dwarf Sweet Sue. 
we actually had someone who wrote editorials for the, the Raleigh newspaper who came over to taste tomatoes once, and he said he had never tasted a tomato other than a red one. And he got to taste a slice of sweet Sue that day, and he thought it was the best tomato that he had ever eaten. And um, we got it out to the F10 generation, and finally it was released in 2012 by the Heritage Seed Market. So Petrina made the cross in 2006, and it hit the market in 2012 at the F10 or beyond generation. So that showed the testament of our ability to squeeze two growing seasons into one calendar year by shuttling things back and forth between Australia and the U.S. And uh, we got a full development of tomato done within about five years. Yeah, that makes a big difference, being able to have two generations in a calendar year. It speeds things up quite a lot. Yeah. So you've mentioned that the project is winding down, and I'm curious, what do you feel is still left undone? Now that these dwarfs are out there in the world, what would you like to discover about them? What we don't know is the relative disease tolerance of these, and what we don't know is who really loves these and where are they doing well. So mm-hmm. it, I would call it the regional adaptation of them. So we've got 106 dwarfs out there. Which one are going to thrive in the Pacific Northwest or in New England or in Australia or in New Zealand? We had to focus on visual beauty and on flavor, and if the two coincided, And I think they do on all of our releases. We didn't want to put out anything beautiful that was tasteless. But what we don't know is how well these are going to fight diseases that exist in various parts of the world or the country. So so to me, that's undone work. And I don't know how to go about collecting that data, but I think it's important to know about. Have you ever thought about that, Katrina, How how we understand how these things are going to do now that they're born and they're out there? Well, yes, I've often thought about it, and I don't really have a good answer to that, but I'm hoping, as you're hoping, that perhaps someone will be interested to actually assess some of the disease resistance aspects and perhaps, where necessary, breed that into the varieties that are tasting fabulous and where we don't really want to lose a particular variety because of its uniqueness. That's one thing. And secondly, I really try to encourage everyone to think about breeding more of the dwarves by other sources that they can bring into the patch because to me the more breeding that we do the more chance we have of maintaining a a really broad genetic diversity for the future but part of that is also being able to get people to grow and continue growing them because even if someone does some crosses and does you know bring in extra genetic diversity but then somehow it's not maintained or they don't find enough growers or it just sits in a cupboard somewhere and never gets used that doesn't help the genetic diversity yeah. either yes i hope people breed i want more people to breed or yeah. have a go have a go at it and if people are interested in once they've looked at the catalog of all of these 106 varieties that you've released if they see one that they would like to use as a parent in their own dwarf variety breeding project because mm-hmm. they're pledged as open source that's something that they could do they could ask for or purchase seeds from one of the seed companies that offers these varieties and use them as a parent in a cross with their favorite heirloom and then the the progeny that come out of it whatever variety they end up with that is, um, according to the pledge, also open source. So yeah, there is the potential for many more dwarf 
varieties or, or even indeterminates to come out of the varieties that you've already released and pledged? Uh, yes. My, my concern is that, you know, I hope people will take it upon themselves to actually go to the effort of contacting the Open Source Seed Initiative in order to pledge the progeny. And um, I, I worry a little mm. bit about that, mm. whether or not everybody will continue to do that. But they should because they, they have been pledged and, and so the progeny are also meant to be pledged. Petrina, you said that you hope that more people get involved and continue breeding to create more genetic diversity for the future. Would you have yes. any advice for those aspiring tomato breeders? I think the main thing I would say to them is if they're interested in protecting the, the genetic biodiversity for their children and for their grandchildren, that they should have a go at breeding. And these days with the internet especially, I think it's a lot easier to get the information that you might need. And it's not really all that hard to do. I, I found that it wasn't at all hard to do, but I, I must admit that I have a very steady hand and I didn't break off many stigmas <laughs> when I first started. I, I, was quite, I was quite gentle and really had a very good success rate. But even, even if you do have some failures, and I certainly did have some failures where I did break the stigma or where, where the cross didn't work, it's no big deal. You just do more of them. And, you know, I just would yeah. encourage everybody, have a go. Just have a go. Yeah, I had about a 25% success rate. So I, I tried 100 crosses one summer and got 25 of them to take. And that, I mean, that's overwhelming in itself because that means you get 25 families. Each one of those crosses sets you off on a research journey. So you could actually read about our dwarf project and learn about basic tomato genetics. And if there's a type of tomato that you don't think is available, go for it. Take two parents that you think would create it Make the cross, get some people to help you out, grow it out, and odds are you'll find what you're looking for. It may be a needle in a haystack. It may be a, you know, a 25% of 25% of 25% type deal. But if you grow enough plants, you may find something wonderful. Roll up your sleeves, get out, pull your anthers off the flowers, get some pollen, and go forth and pollinate. <laughs> and I could add something to that too, that if one of your parents is a dwarf and the other one is not a dwarf, I recommend that you use the dwarf plant as the mother mm plant and get the pollen from the other non-dwarf plant because the tomato that you grow on the dwarf plant that you're saving seeds from, that becomes your first generation. And when you grow those seeds, if there's no dwarfs among them, you, you know very well that you were successful with your cross because the first generation should not show up any dwarfs, the recessive trait. It right. should only show the dominant trait. Right. And so you know that you've been successful, which is also a bonus. <laughs> you know, it feels good. Yeah. Katrina has a Dwarf Project website. I have a website. I have some videos. We, we can really be kind of a resource in terms of email or whatever. Happen to my knowledge, I'm, I'm always happy to share things that I've learned with people freely. That's kind of what it's all about. Yeah, likewise. Likewise here. We're very yep. happy to help people and to answer questions. Wonderful. Yeah. It's very evident that you both have a really generous spirit, both in what you've just said and and the way that this project has been set up. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm inspired to get started breeding tomatoes. Uh, I've never done <laughs> tomato breeding myself. I've worked in peppers and squash and a few other things, but I am already starting to think about the heirlooms that 
I would like to cross to some dwarf tomatoes if you haven't already done those. So great. Yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that this will help inspire a lot of other people to jump into it also. That would be fantastic. Honestly. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you, thank you so much for for this opportunity, and you know it's it's just such a wonderful opportunity, and I hope that people will yeah. really you know sort of take it from there and keep going and breed breed lots. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Craig and Petrina, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Rachel. It's been great, and I've just loved the opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, absolute pleasure, Rachel, and nice talking to you, Katrina, and have a wonderful day, everyone. I've been speaking today with Craig LaHoulier and Petrina Nusky-Small about the collaborative, all-volunteer Dwarf Tomato Project. The Dwarf Tomato Project formally ended on December 31st, 2018, so activities are winding down. But if you'd like to grow any of the tomatoes that have come out of this project in your garden or use them as parents for a breeding project of your own, you can find more information about those varieties, including where to purchase seeds, on the Dwarf Tomato Project's website, www.dwarftomatoproject.net. Craig also has a website, which we'll link to in our show notes, where you can read more about the Dwarf Tomato Project, learn more about Craig's work, and find links to his books, Epic Tomatoes, and Growing Vegetables in Straw Bales. Be sure to check out our show notes on the Open Source Seed Initiatives website at osseeds.org for links and photos of Uluru ochre and dwarf sweet sue. You can also download the full transcript of each episode there. You can find and like the Open Source Seed Initiative on Facebook and subscribe to Free the Seed wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. Thanks so much for listening. I've really enjoyed getting to make this podcast, and I hope that you've enjoyed hearing it. Until next time, I'm your host, Rachel Holtengren, and this has been Free the Seed.